Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us today. I want to say hello to those of you joining us on our online campus. And uh, if you're in one of our parent viewing rooms, that's a great option. If you have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. And I want to let you know that, uh, man, it's so exciting that we're um, baptizing people this evening. And if you've never been baptized and you have questions about that, feel free to come and chat with myself or one of our staff members afterwards. But basically, uh, this is a way for us to say, God, because of your grace, I've been changed. And that's really all it is. It's a declaration that says, because of Jesus, my life is different. My life can be different moving forward. And uh, that the, the symbolism of the baptism means that I bury the old me in what uh, the Apostle Paul calls a watery grave. So it's this burial of the old me. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, it's a resurrection to new life. And so that's why we uh, do it in the water and out of the water. And it's such a, an awesome time to celebrate that. So I want to encourage you, if you are kind of on the fence and you're wondering, is this something I should do? Is this the next step I should take? Or maybe you thought this, uh, I was baptized as an infant and you grew up in a church experience or church tradition that does infant baptism and you're wondering, you know, that was a decision my parents made for me, but what if I get baptized as an adult? I don't want to negate that decision and I can just assure you uh, that doesn't negate anything. That is done out of a, out of a great place and a great heart and uh, we're not against that in any way. But that wasn't necessarily a decision you made as much as a decision your parents made for you. And if you'd like to make that decision for yourself, uh, I think it really just uh, affirms and confirms the decision that was already made for you uh, however many years ago. And so I want to encourage you, if you have questions, if you're on the fence, let us know and uh, we'd love to help you take that next step. And then uh, right after this service, uh, if we've never met or if you're new and you're checking things out and you just have some questions, uh, we're going to do something called five and five right after service. Five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. And we'll do it right down here, right at the front as soon as the service is over today. Now, uh, we're in week four of a series called Asking for a Friend, which is all about, uh, hey, I've got some questions about church or faith or religion or God, and I'm not really sure how to ask it. So uh, asking for a friend is this tongue-in-cheek kind of phrase that we use in our culture. And so we've asked several questions. Uh, how can anybody believe in resurrection? Uh, we talked about that the very first week. The second week, how can I make sense of the Bible? Uh, last week, we asked this question, how could a loving God allow suffering? And I want to encourage you, if you missed any of those weeks, uh, you can check those out online. Today, we're going to ask this question, uh, can I have faith and still doubt? Can I have faith and still doubt? And what do I do with my doubts if I'm pursuing faith? And I have to tell you right as we begin today that I have some doubts. I have to tell you right as we begin, I'm naturally a skeptical person. I'm a skeptic. Uh, I approach my faith from a standpoint of like, let's see how much of it I can de deconstruct and how much of it's left standing at the end. And if you're anything like that, I just want you to know that's how we've been approaching this whole series. And yet I wanted to, you know, start a church because I, after I pulled a lot of things apart, I realized I still love Jesus and, and I still love his church. And so I wanted to start a church. And yet I can tell you that it really doesn't matter how you phrase it. When you tell people that you're starting your own church, it sounds like a cult. It just does. No matter what you say, right? So you're starting your own church. Okay. And I'd have to be like, well, you know, we haven't actually started yet. And we don't have a place to meet. And we don't have any people. But it's going to happen. And uh, I have some doubts sometimes when I think about, you know, when I look in the world and when I look in just in my own life, sometimes I have some doubts about like, God, what are you up to? And I wonder why he seems to answer some prayers and not others. I wonder why some people's lives seem to be blessed and others not so much. Uh, I have a difficult time having relationships sometimes with visible people, yet alone an, a relationship with an invisible person. So I've got some doubts around that, if I'm being honest. 
And sometimes I even doubt what God's up to in my own life. And we don't talk about this very often. It's not something I share a lot because frankly, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. But if I'm being honest, I have some doubts about sometimes, God, what are you doing? And how do we all fit into the whole thing? And I'm sorry if I'm not this unwavering rock of certainty for you this morning and uh, uh, that I wrestle with doubt sometimes. And if you want to stop carrying my picture around in your wallet, I'll understand. (laughs) But I don't think I'm alone. And uh, I think that some of you wrestle with some of the same doubts and some of the same questions and have some of the same struggles. And some of you approach faith from an intellectual mindset and you, you approach it from, okay, logic and intellect and you want to believe in God, but you have some serious questions that are standing in your way. Maybe you uh, attended a comparative religions class when you were in college and your professor was brilliant and you've got some lingering seeds of doubt from that experience. Or uh, possibly some of you wrestle with the deep mysteries that are presented in the scriptures and how they line up with modern science. These are some serious and legitimate doubts. Some of you approach things from an emotional standpoint. And the reason that you have some doubts is because uh, you lost someone who was close to you that you cared about. And now you're going, it's causing me to question everything. God, where are you? And you look at what goes on in our world and you wonder how that could happen. God did something that was out of bounds or inconsistent with his character as you understand it to be. And so you start to wonder, God, Am I putting my faith in something that I shouldn't be? Is is there really something to this whole thing? And here's the dilemma. The scriptures reveal that God over and over and over again throughout the scriptures is asking us to trust him. He's asking us to put our faith in him. In fact, much of the story of the scriptures is about God trying to instill in us a belief or a faith in him, a trust in him that God wants our trust to grow. So how do we do that when we have so many questions and doubts that are lingering along the way? In fact, when you read in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author says this, it's impossible, the author says, it's impossible to please God without faith, which just means, you, you know, you can't, if you don't believe God exists, then you wouldn't even try to pursue God. The author continues, says, anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. If there's zero idea or belief that God even exists, then you won't seek God. And and the author is just saying, look, if you're going to experience God, if you're going to seek after him, on some level, you have to at least start with the idea that there might be the possibility that God exists. And then you sincerely seek him. And for so many people, that's where you're at. You're sincerely seeking. You're not at the point where you're like, "I, I have any sort of certainty. You're just sincerely seeking And some of you carry these doubts with you into this church community, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I love your little uh, cute little slogan, come as you are, that's great, but what if I shared with you my serious questions and doubts? Would you turn me away? Would you turn your back on me? If I asked hard questions, would you write me off? And when you carry doubts with you into a church, you really have one of three options. Uh, One is to just go, okay, I don't feel like I can ask my questions and I'm out. And you can just check out and you can bail and, uh, you know, that's it, and you can leave. A second option would be to just check your brain at the door and just put on a smile and pretend that it all makes sense and pretend that you believe and that you don't, make sure I don't cause any ripples and make sure I don't rock the boat at all. I think there's a third option and that is just to stay and to lean in and at the same time to be honest about your questions and your doubts and your struggles. And many people left church because the church made them feel like this is an unsafe community, that I can't get my questions answered here, sincere 
faith questions. And then there are those who decided that they would stay in church and they simply put on a smile and make it work. And as a result, their relationship with God is at a stalemate and they never grow. They just kind of go through the motions, but they really have these lingering doubts and these lingering questions that are on their minds. And they go through the motions, but they never move forward because there's these issues for them that just never get talked about and never get dealt with. And so I like the third option. Stay and lean in and be honest about your questions. But to do that, we've got to tackle some of the myths surrounding faith. There's some ideas that are sometimes perpetuated in sort of church world and church circles that seem really good on the surface, but when you dig beneath the surface a little bit, they really don't make sense. In fact, they can really do a lot of damage to faith. And the first myth is this, that faith equals blind belief and certainty. Faith is this, I have this absolute certainty that God exists. Can I tell you something? That's a myth. That's just a myth. And that's just the reality. There's this idea that gets sort of woven into this uh, idea of faith that to have faith, you have to have absolute certainty that God exists. And that if you have any doubt, then you don't have faith. And if you have any doubt in your mind whatsoever, uh, then your relationship with God is on shaky ground. And the problem is, if you were taught to believe that faith equals blind belief and certainty, and that somehow your eternity hangs in the balance, right? Uh, which means, okay, if I'm going to believe, if I'm going to have faith, that means 100% certainty. God, I'm so certain that you exist. Then the easiest thing for you to do is try to convince yourself of the certainty of that belief so that you'd never put your eternity in jeopardy. It's like a game at the state fair. Uh, you've seen this game where you, you take the sledgehammer and you try to ring the bell. And it's like the harder that you hit it, then the, the higher it goes. And it's supposed to be a measurement of your strength, right? And if you hit it hard enough and it goes all the way to the top and you ring the bell, winner, winner, chicken dinner. It's just this uh, fun game and you see people play it and every once in a while someone actually rings the bell. And a lot of people approach their faith in God that way. They have this, uh, you know, that's kind of the strengthometer. A lot of people approach their faith in God as if they have a faithometer. It's, it's like, okay, uh, that's how I measure their belief in God with the idea that the more convinced I am that God is real and the more that you feel certain about that, then the more spiritual you must be. And it's this idea that faith is somehow a term of measurement. For instance, if you feel 51% sure of the existence of God, all right, well, that punches your ticket to heaven. But if you're like, if you can convince yourself to be 75% sure, then you start getting better parking spaces and your sports teams start winning more often. And if you can get to 90%, you might actually experience physical healing. Like, like it's a measurement. And, and this belief also sets up some really interesting dilemmas. Like, what if Bill is praying and he has convinced himself of the certainty that Sue is the woman for him? And so he's just praying, God, please make it clear to Sue that we are to be together. And what if Sue is praying with equal certainty, God, please keep Bill away from me? <laughs> Which prayer does God answer? Does he just go with whoever has more faith? He's like, well, you know, Bill's got 63% faith. Sorry, Sue. How does that work? One guy sincerely believes that God's going to help the Vikings win. One guy sincerely believes that God's going to help the Packers win, right? So whose prayer does God answer? Whoever has more faith? How do you measure that? Clearly nobody in Detroit has been praying for a long time, but you get the idea, right? If certainty is your definition of faith, if that's what you think is, faith is, okay, this blind belief, this certainty, and I've got to convince myself of the certainty of God's existence, and that's what faith is, this is, it'll lead you to the second myth, which is this. Doubt is the opposite of faith. 
If that's true, that faith in God means certainty, then that means I've got to make sure that I never doubt. I've got to make sure that I don't have uh, these lingering questions, these lingering doubts. I've got to make sure that I just convince myself of the certainty. I become like the cowardly lion. I do believe. I do believe. I do. I do. I do. And I've just got to convince myself. If your faith in God is equal to certainty, then that means any form of doubt or questions that you might have about the existence of God or about his role in the universe, or th- those would be considered the opposite of faith. And those would be considered damaging to faith. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. If you believe that faith equals blind belief and certainty and that you should never, ever, ever, ever doubt, then that definition of faith causes you to look for evidence to support what you already believe. And instead of starting with a blank slate and exploring truth and trying to find truth, and you'll start with a picture of what you think you ought to believe, and then you will only search for evidence that supports that picture. And to do that, you will build relationships only with those who agree with you and who support that idea and eventually criticize anyone who disagrees with you. And think about it. If you're taught that the certainty in God's existence is what... You have to have absolute certainty in God's existence and that your whole eternity hangs in the balance of that one decision and that's where you'll start. And you'll find reason, every reason that you can to make it true and only surround yourself with people who think the same as you. And that approach to faith is exactly why for so many years, Christians and the church in general has for a long time gotten the reputation of being judgmental and bigoted is because There's a tendency in churches to surround myself with people who think the same as me, who see the world the same as me, who who just, and we just close the wagons. And and it's like, hey, hey, you're welcome here if you think like we do. And if not, good luck. And nobody says that out loud. It's just unintentionally the message that can get communicated. And as long as you never have to leave the the cozy confines of your Christian circle, then your faith will never come under any type of doubt. You never have to answer any questions. But if you read the scriptures with an open mind and you just learn about the truth of God and his existence and you explore his role in the world, I believe that you'll be led to a very different idea about faith and doubt. And I think it's this. Here's the truth about faith and doubt. It's this. Faith is a term of relationship, not measurement. I I think we do a, a big disservice to the idea of faith when we talk about it in terms of measurement, when we talk about it in terms of intellectual pursuit, that somehow I've got to arrive at this place where I'm certain or I'm 70% certain or 90% certain or a term of measurement. And throughout the scriptures, the New Testament writers never ever describe faith in terms of measurement. They only ever describe faith in terms of relationship. Why is that? It's because faith or trust is not a term of measurement as it pertains to trusting God. Uh, It's a term of relationship. It, It says this, faith is the willingness to commit to a course of action, not because of certainty, but because of a reasonable level of trust. An investigated level of trust. Now think about it like this. When uh, Cherry and I first got married, I did not have any level of certainty about our future. There was nothing that said, this is for certain what's going to happen. This is for certain how things are going to play out. Here's what we had. When we stood, uh, you know, in front of each other and looked each other in the eye and said, I, you know, I commit to you for the rest of my life here on earth. We had zero certainty. What we had is a reasonable level of trust based on everything I know about this person leading up to this point. I have enough. 
I've investigated enough and I have enough information that I'm willing to commit to a course of action based on everything I've learned up to this point. That's called faith. And it isn't a term of measurement. It is a relational trust that says I'm willing to commit to a course of action based on a reasonable level of investigated trust. And that's exactly what we do with Jesus. Now, when you think about Cherie, she had even less certainty, much bigger leap for her to commit to me. And the same thing is true with faith in God. I can't prove to you that God exists any more than you can prove that God doesn't exist. Regardless of what your belief system is, every single one of us are putting our trust in something. We're putting our trust in something. There's a belief system. Even, even to say God doesn't exist, I'm an atheist, that is a belief system that you are putting your hope in. You, you have investigated and you've arrived at a conclusion and based on a reasonable uh, level of investigation, you've concluded and you've committed to a course of action. That actually is faith in something. And we are committing our life to a course of action based on a reasonable level of trust. That's what faith is. And that's why I believe this, that doubt is an important step in the faith process. In fact, when you read through the scriptures, people who doubted actually helped move the mission of the church forward because they asked great questions. And if you've got doubts and you're like, man, I really want to believe, but I've got some serious questions and I've got some serious doubts and there's some things that I got to get settled, that's a good place to be. Because doubt causes you to ask great questions. Doubt forces you to seek understanding. Doubt leads the way in exploration of what course of action to take. As a matter of fact, if doubt didn't exist, faith wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be faith at all if everything was built on certainty of everything that I see in front of me. That's not faith. And without doubt, faith is impossible. Your, your faith is not just a blind belief. Faith is not convincing yourself that something is true, even though you have a ton of questions. That's why you date before you get married, right? To figure out the doubts that you have, to get answers to the question, is there a reasonable level of trust that I have in this person that I can continue to move forward. And if you want to have a solid faith in God, it would be wise for you to ask some questions in that relationship as well. Ask good questions. And if we're honest, there are some things about the Christian belief system that can be confusing, that can be difficult to deal with. There's all kinds of things that uh, many of us bring with us from a childhood religious experience, a denominational experience, a family experience. There's all kinds of baggage that we've got to unpack, assumptions and expectations that we bring to the story of the scriptures and the story of Jesus. And it, was, it is wise for us to unpack those things and to ask those questions. And when you come across something that you don't understand or something that is difficult to deal with, you can just bury your head in the sand and pretend that doesn't exist and just go, well, uh, if I ask that question and if I doubt, then I, my eternity might be in jeopardy. Maybe God will excommunicate me from the family for asking the wrong question, so I better not ask. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to cause any ripples. Or you can just take your doubts and go, well, I, I'm not going to get this question answered, so therefore I can't believe in God at all, so I better throw the whole thing out. And some people in their doubting and in their questions, they just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and they go, well, I didn't get that answered, so how can I believe in this God because I can't get these questions answered? And then they just give themselves permission to live, you know, license to live their life however they want to live, and they use doubt as an excuse. But you can also just lean into your doubts and ask your questions and commit to a course of action until you reach a reasonable level of trust. Because ultimately, if it's true, it can stand up your questions and your doubts. 
Because questions are an important part of the spiritual journey. And it's important for you to know God is not threatened by your questions. Like, God is not like, oh man, I was hoping they wouldn't find out about that. He is not threatened by your questions. God is more honored by our honesty, by confronting our doubts, and by confronting our questions than by burying them. Because when you and I choose not to deal with our doubts, they surface at the worst possible time. They surface at the time when we are experiencing loss, grief, tragedy, uh, pain, and all of a sudden that's when our doubts creep in. And God wants us to deal with those things head on. In fact, for 2,000 years, cautious people and skeptics have saved the church from getting away from its core values and true teachings. In Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul questions at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he questions this overly Jewish orientation of the church's mission. And they make a change. In the 1500s, Martin Luther boldly tacked 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. He called into question the whole idea of selling indulgences in the Catholic Church. And out of that questioning began a reformation that birthed the Protestant Church. In the late 1700s, William Wilberforce argued logically and forcefully that the church's longstanding practice of turning a blind eye towards slavery doesn't line up with what he reads about Jesus. And he led the way and led the charge that ended slavery in the British Commonwealth. Thank God for skeptics. Thank God for people who ask the tough questions. History proves to us that doubt has been good for the church. Because it forces us to ask the right questions. And there were people who asked good questions who were willing to look for answers and pursue their doubts in order to discover truth. And there's a rhythm of healthy questions and answers. It's, it's how we grow in our faith. You think about doubt, one of the most famous doubters of all time is one of Jesus' disciples. A guy named Thomas, and in fact, in all of the scriptures, what we remember him as throughout church history, the nickname he gets is Doubting Thomas. This is his nickname. And yet, when you read in uh, verses before we get to this point in his story, you actually discover he had another nickname. He already had a nickname. Uh, the scriptures tell us that his nickname was uh, Didymus, which means twin. Kind of a boring nickname. I don't know how well it would do on Jersey Shore. But we read that uh, Thomas had some doubts. Thomas had some questions. After Jesus rose from the dead, here's what we come across. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. So Jesus had appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, and Thomas wasn't with them. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the womb in his side. Now, here's uh, how we Monday morning quarterback this. Come on, Thomas. Pfft. Jesus rose from the dead. Dude, this is awesome. But imagine, imagine if a bunch of people told you, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. How would you respond to that? You're like... Yeah, I'm going to need to see that for myself. Like, I, I, I resonate with Thomas. And to this day, Thomas is known throughout church culture as Doubting Thomas because of one instance where he asked for evidence. How would you like to be given a nickname based on one moment in your life? And somebody else got to pick it, and they're like, well, this is your nickname forever. That would be potentially embarrassing. But to his credit, he didn't walk away. He continued to pursue his questions. He continued to ask, try to discover some answers. It might surprise you to know that in the 16th century, when the Portuguese explorers landed in the southwestern part of India, 
they found crosses everywhere they went. They were shocked by it. It turns out a church was already there. They found a thriving church throughout India and all the way towards Western China. Why? Nobody in Europe even knew about this because in the 50s and 60s and 70s AD, Thomas had traveled east into the ends of the earth, spreading the good news of the message of Jesus. He was one of the greatest spiritual entrepreneurs in church history, ultimately giving his life in martyrdom to spread the good news of Jesus, and yet he had moments of doubt and he struggled with questions. Uh, And I hope that you find that as encouraging as I do. That's encouraging to me. Those moments when I feel like, God, can I even ask this question? Because here's my struggle. My hope this morning is that you will leave here today with the freedom and the permission to doubt even as you move forward in your faith. And I want to give you some really practical steps that you can take to do that. But this is not an exhaustive list. They're not meant to build on each other. These are just some ideas. You might even add some ideas to this list. But these are just some very practical things that you can do in the midst of doubt, in the midst of questions, in the midst of those struggles to help you move forward. And the first one is this. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Now, I know this sounds trite and cliche, and you're like, okay, preacher man, that's that's your answer. But throughout history, people have asked God to reveal himself to them. God, if you're there, show me. God, if you're there, I, I, let me know that you're there. Get, let, give me some kind of an idea that you're around. And oftentimes it doesn't mean that God shows up in person. I've never seen God physically in person. I've never heard the audible voice of God. But there are things that happen in my life that have shown me, God, you're there. God, I, I have to, there's no other explanation for this. I have to believe that that's you. I have to believe that you're working. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? Where's Waldo is, uh, uh, somebody actually um, posted something this last week and it was actually like a, um, a, a gravestone and it said Waldo on it and it just said, guys, I've got good news and bad news. And then it hit me, I was like, oh, that's funny. Where's Waldo? We found him and now we know where he's at. So where's Waldo is this phenomenon that t- you know, kind of took the world by storm. And uh, the, the crazy thing about where's Waldo is he, you can see he's in plain sight. But it's so hard to find him. And oftentimes, that's like how God operates. He's, he's right there, but we just got to open our eyes and become more aware. Say, God, reveal yourself to me, because I think you might be working, but would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show me? And I know that maybe sounds trite and like the last thing you want to do when you're doubting, but there's a pattern throughout the scripture of people in moments of raw honesty going, God, are you there? God, if you're there, give me a sign. God, let me see that you're present. Let me see that you're active somehow, some way. And help me to put my trust in the fact that that might be you working behind the scenes. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel asked God to show up for them. And here's, here's what God says to the nation of Israel. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Jesus himself says this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. This isn't about uh, God give me the stuff that I want. This is about discovering God. It's about discovering who Jesus is. Or God, reveal yourself to me. And God says, if you, if you knock, if you ask, if you seek me, you'll find me. I will reveal myself to you. And I, I think that one of the most simple and purest forms of faith is simply to pray to God and be honest about where you're at with your doubts. God, I just, I, I'm struggling. I need to know that you're here. I need to know that you're with me. Moses asked God for a sign to prove to him that he was with him and that God had chosen him. 
Gideon asked God over and over and over again, God, give me signs to know that you're truly with me. Throughout the scriptures, people who are often hailed as the heroes of the faith are saying, God, are you there? Jesus, when he's hanging on a cross, cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark chapter 9, a guy brings his son to Jesus for healing. And, and he says, I, I believe that you can heal him. Please help my unbelief. I think that's an amazing prayer. Jesus, I've got some level of faith that you can do this, but there's also a part of me that kind of wonders if you can. I believe, but please help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence between faith and doubt here. In fact, you read in Matthew chapter 28 uh, when Jesus is with his disciples and he's already, he's died and he's resurrected and he's spent several weeks with them. And now he's giving them a teaching and there's this little verse in Matthew 28 and it says, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. I read that this last week and I just went, huh. They've been hanging out with the resurrected Savior for weeks and they still got some doubts. I think it's normal to experience that from time to time. What's important is what do we do with it? And I think it's okay to say, God, in this season, uh, will you reveal yourself to me? Will you show up? Will you remind me that you're present? Will you remind me that you're active? Will you help me in this season? And so number one, be honest with God. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Secondly, I would say this, put yourself in faith environments. Go where faith is. Put yourself in environments that help you. Don't use your doubts and questions as a crutch that keeps you at arm's distance from God. People who overcome their doubts or learn to deal with their doubts put themselves in situations where they can find some answers. In Proverbs, Solomon writes this, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. That matters. We help each other grow. Sometimes you can borrow the faith of somebody else and you... Maybe read some books, get some of your specific questions answered, or maybe listen to audiobooks or podcasts and deal with the issues you're dealing with. Get a readable version of the Bible and begin to read it for yourself. Uh, get into a group, make some friends so that you can have some people in your life that you can ask these questions to. We talk about this all the time. Groups are so important because all of us hit need to know and need to grow moments. And it's so simple. Need to know moment is this. There is something that I don't know that I need to know in order to keep moving forward in my faith in order to keep walking with Jesus. And, and when you're in a group, you have a group of people that you can ask those questions to. And then all of us hit need to grow moments. And that's this, I know exactly what I need. I don't need more information. I know exactly what God wants me to do. I don't wanna do it. And so I need some people who surround me, who help me take that next step of faith when I'm struggling. And that's why we do groups here. That's why they matter. That's why it's so important. Because when life happens, you can't retroactively build community. And so we want you to get into a group of people because we're all gonna hit those need to know and need to grow moments. That's why we do this service here every single weekend so that you can listen to a teaching and reflect on what it means for you and ask your questions thoughtfully and work through your faith. But you are responsible to put yourself in an environment where your faith can grow and where you can honestly explore some of your doubts and some of your questions. And that leads us to number three, sincerely, ask your questions. Sincerely ask. Ask those questions. Do you remember in second grade when your teacher told you there are no stupid questions? She lied. There are some stupid questions. And this is what some people will do because they're not being sincere about it. They really just want to figure out a, a, a way to keep living their life. So they'll say, hey, can God create a stone so big that he himself can't move it? 
You know, questions like that. What happens if you get scared half to death twice in a row? And these kinds of questions that are just like not sincere questions. But if you look at the story of Thomas, look at his life. Look at the sincere questions that Thomas asked. Jesus is talking about preparing a place for them in heaven. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare them for you. I'm going to come back for you and you'll join me and you'll know the way. And in the middle of that speech from Jesus, it's like Thomas kind of like, I can just imagine like his hand going up. And here's what he says. He says, no, we don't know, Lord. Thomas said, we haven't any idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And I feel like Jesus just kind of has a smirk on his face, and he's just like, Thomas, I love that. I I think Jesus knows that Thomas's question is legitimate. And I think Jesus loves the guy who raises his hand and goes, I don't get it. Jesus, I want to get it, but I don't get it. I think Jesus loves that. And some of you have been stuck in your faith, and you've been too afraid to simply ask the questions that have been troubling you. But when you sincerely ask your questions, as scriptures show, Jesus loves those who sincerely seek him and sincerely try to get their questions answered. And so whatever it takes, whether that's reading books, uh, some people will listen to podcasts, some people will, you know, take their pastor out to a very nice dinner and ask those questions. Number four, consider the options. There's this story in John chapter 6, and Jesus has just come off of this incredible miracle. He's fed 5,000 people uh, with, you know, a very small amount of food. It's this miracle, and people are just, like, loving what Jesus is doing. And then he gives this incredible uh, talk, and people are left, everybody's cheering, and it's just like his approval rating is at an all-time high. And then he says this weird thing. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, There's this allegory that he's using, but nobody takes it that way. And uh, people start to go, whoa, that was weird. And as you read through the story in John chapter 6, it says that his followers started to leave him. They they started to abandon him. They were like, Jesus, we really like the feeding 5,000 people thing and all all the riff that you do on prayer. Like, we really like that stuff and like... Good Samaritan, and I mean, that was a great story, and like, we really like all that stuff, but this, man, I, I just don't know what to do with that. And John tells us everybody started to leave. Jesus thinks he's a vampire. I, I think he's lost it. I'm totally unfriending him on Facebook, and um, that's it. And when the crowds are gone, only 12 people are left. And so here, here's what we read. Because of this, because of this saying, because of this teaching, many of Jesus' followers turned back and would not go with him anymore. They're like, okay, we're out. Jesus, we liked all the other stuff, but that was weird. And so he asked the 12 disciples, and you, would you also like to leave? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. And here's what happens when people have doubts, when they find something objectionable about their view of Christianity or their view of God or the way that they see church or the way that they see religion. And and, and there's something objectionable or they have a question or they have a doubt. And instead of asking that question, they just go, ah, who can, who can deal with this? I'm out. Let's dip. And they're gone. And so many people walk away from faith in God because they have doubts or because God does something inconsistent with what they believe their version of God is. And they don't understand every time you walk away from something, you're walking towards something else. And I want to encourage you, before you walk away from faith, consider the options. 
what is it that you're walking to? What is it that you're moving toward? Before you decide to walk away from God, consider the options. Who else offers the words of eternal life? Who else says, come as you are? Who else offers forgiveness and hope? Yeah, I, I don't have it all figured out. I, I got, there's some mysteries when I read some of the things in the scriptures that I, I, I don't know that I'll ever get answered this side of eternity. And, you know, I, I don't understand and may never understand. But, Jesus, where else could I go? Who else is offering the words of eternal life? You see, so many people walk away from God, and then you know what happens? They don't hurt God. And they don't hurt the church. They hurt themselves. And they walk away from faith in God because of an objection or a doubt or a question that they didn't feel could get answered or they didn't feel comfortable asking, but they never stopped to consider what they're walking towards. And then they don't end up getting their questions answered anyways. And oftentimes they return back years later to faith and they still don't have those same questions answered, but they come back with a lot more scars. And because God is for you and because God loves you, he wants you to avoid that. God would rather you lean in and deal with the questions and deal with the struggles and deal with the doubts and ask those questions. And maybe even say this, I don't know if I can even get that question answered this side of eternity, but God, who else is offering eternal life? Who else holds the words that offer me hope for eternal life? So before I walk away from you, I'm gonna consider the options. To whom can I go? Nobody else is offering what you're offering. And so maybe before you, before you push God away, before you keep God and faith at arm's distance, consider the options. Before you walk away, consider what you're walking toward. And then, number five, just take a step. Just take a step. See, this is critical because if you're stuck in your faith, let me encourage you not to confuse knowledge with faith. Knowledge is a mental assent and 100% certainty. Okay, knowledge is, uh, okay, here's the set of things that I'm supposed to believe are true. Because if I believe these things are true, because I'm supposed to believe those things are true, then me and God will be good. But if I don't claim all these things are true, even though I've got some questions and some doubts, I don't know if I'm gonna be good with God. That is not the message of Jesus. The, the message of faith is, is not about knowledge. Faith implies being willing to act despite absolute certainty. Okay, God, there's some stuff that ah, are a mystery to me. There's some things that I'm not sure about, but based on everything I know about you up to this point, I'm willing to commit to a course of action. I'm willing to move forward. And I'm willing to bring my unanswered questions with me along the way, hoping that I can get some of them answered as we go. But based on everything I know about you up to this point, I'm willing to commit to a course of action based on a reasonable level of trust. That is faith. You don't have to know everything in order to act on what you do know, and it is possible to make a move towards Jesus while continuing to explore your questions and your doubts. Faith says this, I trust you enough to do what you asked me to do even when I don't understand. It is rooted in relationship. Have you found enough evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. Do, do you, is there enough there that you could take a step toward Jesus? That you could move forward in your faith? Have you seen enough change in the people in your life who are following Jesus to begin to take that next step as well? Are you willing to move in God's direction even though you don't have all of your questions answered? To continue to go, God, based on everything I know about you up to this point, I'm gonna keep moving forward. I'm gonna keep taking another step and another step and another step. 
And I don't have all my questions answered, but I'm willing to commit to a course of action because of a reasonable level of trust. And that's what I want to invite you to do. If you've never said yes to following Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. And it doesn't mean that you have certainty and it doesn't mean you have all your questions answered. It means, okay, based on what I've explored about Jesus up to this point, I'm willing to commit to following him. I'm willing to to take that step and move in that direction. And I'll bring my unanswered questions with me. And if you'd like to take that step and say yes to following Jesus, you can do that right where you sit, right where you're watching online. Just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I have walked away from you and I'm so grateful that you never walk away from me. And I wanna say yes to your invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son, make me your daughter and help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for each of us as we work through our questions and our doubts, may we be honest with them. May we be reminded that you can handle our doubts and our questions. And rather than walk away or give ourselves license to live however we want to, or, and rather than bury our head in the sand and just never bring it up, may we lean into community. May we lean into uh, the relational trust. And may we continue to move forward and grow in our love for you and our love for others. We pray this in your name. Amen.